uh, invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it uh, to the New Testament toward the backs of your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy. Uh, you'll find it if you're using one of the Bibles uh, under a seat in front of you. Uh, you'll find that on page 935. Uh, if you're using a smartphone or an iPad or some other sort of device, you'll eventually swipe your way there. 2 Timothy, as we continue in this uh, uh, series called Woven, uh, that looks at books of the Bible kind of from 30,000 feet or so to get a, a big picture view of what's going on in a whole book of the Bible. Already in this series, we've been in 1 Timothy, uh, at least in this as we've revisited this series this year, we've been in 1 Timothy. Last week we were in Isaiah, this week we're in 2 Timothy. Next week we'll be in Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. So if you want something, uh, if you want to know what to read ahead of time for next Sunday, read through the prophet of Jeremiah this week. And then we'll close uh, the last Sunday of uh, November as we uh, get ready to go into the Advent season, Christmas season in December. We'll close uh, with Paul's letter to Titus. Uh, today, though, in 2 Timothy. Uh, prayerfully, you received one of the um, uh, note sheets to help you kind of follow along with these. Those are the, the little uh, uh, handouts that we prepare for these are for this particular series uh, specifically so that you can have and use those as a resource if it's helpful, um, used to follow along as we cover a lot of ground this morning uh, as we look at Second Timothy. But you can stick those in your Bible, file them away somewhere as a helpful resource to you uh, as you study um, uh, God's Word and the different books of it uh, as we go through it. Uh, just by way of information, if by any reason you need one of the handouts from a sermon in this series long ago, like way early in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, uh, give me a holler, shoot me an email or something, let me know, and I'll be happy to get that to you. And uh, and now that I'm committing myself to more work this week, Dan, Pastor Danny, maybe we'll find a way to post those online so people can download them or something like that. Yeah, there, there we go put that on our to-do list. Uh, today, 2 Timothy. The letter of 2 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 or so uh, letters uh, that are contained in the New Testament. Uh, this letter is different from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was written uh, probably in the early to mid-60s AD. This letter uh, is written in the mid to late 60s AD, where 1 Timothy was written by Paul to the young pastor Timothy in the city of Ephesus, maybe during Paul's first imprisonment uh, or shortly after his first imprisonment in Rome, this letter is being written during his second and final imprisonment. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy as he is looking toward his own execution for the faith. Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus, a city in Asia Minor, to provide leadership to the church there. Paul himself had spent more time in Ephesus than any other city during his ministry. And Timothy's charge as he goes to lead this church in this metropolis of a city is to guard the church against the influence of false teachers. We saw that in 1 Timothy. We'll see it again in 2 Timothy. And to guide the church to godliness and to good order. 2 Timothy is commonly called a pastoral epistle, a pastoral letter, because a lot of it is aimed at the life of the pastor, Timothy, to whom Paul is writing. This letter, uh, where 1 Timothy is focused on good order in the church and uh, confronting false teaching, 2 Timothy is focused mostly on the imperatives and instruction for Timothy as Paul prepares to die in prison. These are Paul's last words, in many ways, to his uh, fellow servant. 
there are a number of different themes that appear throughout the course of 2 Timothy. There are three in particular that I think are worth noting, and we'll hit on these as we make our way through it. But the first is perseverance and suffering. Paul is suffering for the gospel, and he's writing to Timothy in some sense to encourage him to endure suffering, persecution uh, for the gospel, to endure it with perseverance and faithfulness to Christ. We also see the importance of faithfulness to the gospel in this letter, and also the sufficiency of Scripture as a, a, a foundation for Timothy's ministry in the church. Now, every letter, every, every book of the Bible falls somewhere into the scope of redemption history. God's work of redeeming a people from their sin for himself, from the beginning of creation until Christ comes again. Uh, the redemption history is summarized in these four great epics of, of, of history, really creation, when God made everything, the fall, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate the, for the fruit that God had uh, forbidden them from eating, thereby breaking fellowship with God and, uh, and, and bringing sin and death and sickness into the world. Redemption, which is God had worked on over thousands of years to bring to fruition from Adam and Eve's sin until the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, God working a plan to rescue His people, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus And that last uh, phase of redemption history, consummation, which we've not yet experienced. We've seen redemption in those of us who know Christ, who have repented of sin and trusted in Him. We know this rescue from sin, and we are looking forward to a day, as Scripture leads us to and encourages us to, looking forward to a day when Christ will return to consummate His kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth, where all those who trusted Him in this life will live with Him forever. 2 Timothy kind of covers, in some sense, those last two epics, redemption and consummation. Everything that Paul is saying to Timothy uh, is rooted in the redemption that they have in Christ and among the community of the redeemed in the church. But there's also so much, even as Paul is encouraging Timothy to endure persecution with suffering, so much of that that is looking forward to the consummation of Christ's kingdom. We endure suffering today because it's worth it, because Christ is worth it, and because he's coming again. You have some notes there that will help you to know how to read epistles, uh, how to read the letters in the New Testament, some suggested questions to ask yourself and to work your way through. You have a, an outline of Timothy there in your guide as, uh, as well that uh, may be helpful for you as you study Second Timothy on your own. But today we look at, from 30,000 feet, Second Timothy, a sermon that I've titled, Last Words. The last words spoken publicly by Elvis Presley, the great... Uh, singer, the king of rock and roll. The last words he spoke, he uttered uh, at the end of a concert, the night that he died. His last words to those of his concert goers listening to him were, I hope I haven't bored you. Contrast that with the final words of Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain during the Second World War, who before he fell into a coma preceding his death said, I'm bored with it all. Last words, especially when we know something of the lives of those who uttered them, carry such significance. Think about the life of Elvis Presley, the fame of Elvis Presley, everything that his, his talent brought him in his final words, I hope I haven't bored you. And everything that Winston Churchill went through in, in leading uh, so much of, uh, of the allied forces against, uh, uh, against Nazi forces and Axis powers in Europe to before he died, say, I'm bored with it all. 
Last words have significance, and we tend to listen to last words more closely. We tend to take them in more sincerely. And if we have the blessing to know when we are about to speak our last words, we choose those words ever so carefully. Now here is Paul waited in Roman prison for his impending execution. He writes his last words to his son in the faith, Timothy, one more time to encourage him a few different ways. In his letter, Paul encourages Timothy with, I think, at least four explicit and sort of thematic encouragements. The first is this, last words, confidence in Christ, Timothy, enables faithful suffering for Christ. Confidence in Christ enables faithful suffering for Christ. When we think on the life of the Apostle Paul, and what often comes, what often comes to mind are two themes in Paul's life. First, his former life as a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. That's how he got his start. And then second, his life of suffering for the gospel of Jesus after his conversion to the faith. Paul is, if anything, a man of two lives. Prior to his conversion, he held the coats of those who were stoning Christians to death. And after his conversion and in his ministry, he suffered, as he tells us in one of his letters, 39 lashes of the whip on five different occasions. Paul was adrift at sea. He was at danger from robbers, in danger from his own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the country and in the city and at sea, in danger from false brothers, often hungry, thirsty, cold, exposed, twice imprisoned. And this time, in his last imprisonment, he writes to Timothy as he's preparing to die. Paul, I'm tempted to ask, how, brother, how did you endure all this? Perhaps in part to remind himself and to prepare his young protege, Timothy, Paul tells us how he endured all this. He endured all this suffering even as a joy, considering it a joy, because of his confidence in the risen Jesus. Look at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 8-12. through 12. Paul writes to the young pastor, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Confidence in Jesus, Paul says, is the antidote to the poison of shame that others would thrust on the Christian. The calling of salvation through the purposing of God's grace planned in ages eternally old is an anchor for the soul that is tossed about by the winds of insult and derision. The appearance of Christ in the flesh, raised from the dead after dying for sins, a scandal to all who would seek to be righteous in their own efforts, is a bulwark against the onslaught of fear of man. Knowledge of Christ, who is the object of our faith, and certainty of his ability and intention to bring our salvation to its full maturity in the resurrection. Now that's a recipe for endurance. That's a plan for enduring suffering. And Paul, in his final words to Timothy, says... I'm not ashamed to suffer like this because I know Christ and I know who I am in Christ. 
This confidence in Jesus spurs Paul's suffering on behalf of those who have believed and even on behalf of those who have yet to believe. He says in in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I'm suffering for those who have been saved and for those who will be saved, and I'm glad to do it. The saying is trustworthy, verse 11, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will, also, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Listen, says Paul, Jesus is risen from the dead, so... There's nothing to fear and everything to gain in him. So for the sake of those who do believe and for the sake of those who will believe, I'll suffer, Paul says, and gladly. If I die, it's no big deal. I'll live again in Christ. If we endure, Timothy, wonderful. We'll be all the more ready to stand next to Jesus in glory. But on the flip side, my son in the faith, if we disregard suffering, if we deny the path of Jesus, he'll deny us too because he is always faithful to his character, whether we are or not. I'm not scared to suffer, Timothy. And I'm not scared to die. And neither should you be. Be confident in Christ, dear son. He's worth it. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, Paul says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When I grow up, church, and I'll be 40 this week. When I grow up, I hope I can say the same. I hope I can say with confidence the same words that Paul said here, not in a way that points to my greatness and strength and faithfulness, no, but in a way that points to the faithfulness of Jesus, to a know-nothing nobody like me who just wanted to follow him. Are you scared to suffer for the faith? Maybe not in prison, no, but... Maybe losing a job, maybe losing friends, losing family, losing influence or sway in society. I am too sometimes. But know this, Christ will not deny and Christ will not leave in the grave those who have received him, those who have followed him, those who have believed on him and trusted him. His path to glory went through the cross. Our path to victory in Jesus may lead the same way. But in Paul's last words, we are reminded that Christ is worth it. He knows who are his. He will not forsake those whose confidence is in him. Charles Simeon was a pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge in England for 54 years, from 1782 to 1836. He was not a pastor that the church wanted, not at first, and not at least for the first 12 years of his pastorship. Parishioners in the church locked their pews to force people to stand for Sunday service in order to make it more uncomfortable for Charles to preach there. They locked the church doors to prevent Simeon from preaching the midweek service. Even 30 years into his ministry, conflict arose again for the second time for a three-year period in which he suffered all the more uh, at the hands of his church. 
1831, after almost 49 years in ministry, a friend asked Charles Simeon how he endured such persecution and rejection, even from Christ's own flock. Charles Simeon replied, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Confidence in Christ enabling Charles Simeon's endurance of suffering. Confidence in Christ enabling Paul's endurance of suffering. Confidence in Christ that would enable Timothy to endure persecution for Christ. Second theme among Paul's last words is this, that the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners, the gospel is a generational gift. So Timothy, keep on giving it. Keep on giving it. It's clear that Paul thinks of Timothy as a son, a son uh, uh, not biologically but spiritually. He calls him his child in chapter 1 verse 2. There's such a close mentor-mentee relationship between the two that it looks like family. But Paul is not the first person to whom, or from whom, excuse me, Timothy learned the gospel. In fact, it was his mother and his grandmother who introduced Timothy to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Timothy's mother and grandmother were Jewish women, though Timothy's father was Greek. Nevertheless, these two women made certain to invest and give the gift of the knowledge of God to Timothy as a child, an investment that Paul recognized and poured into even more to see faith and Christ-likeness blossom in this young pastor, such to the point that Paul was confident enough to put him uh, uh, overseeing the many house churches that were meeting in a great city like Ephesus. Dear moms and grandmas, aunts and big sisters, thank you. Thank you for loving us enough to show us Jesus. Dear dads and grandpas, brothers and uncles, thank you for modeling godliness by teaching us the gospel. Brothers and sisters, can we, like Lois and Eunice, can we commit to being like these? Can we commit to giving the gospel as a gift to the generation below us? That we might see future Timothys, Tituses, Barnabases, Apolloses, raised up in the church to lead the church for generations on? Oh, I pray that we would. But the giving of the gospel doesn't stop there from father to son or mother to son or grandmother to grandson. It goes on. Hear what Paul charges Timothy with his last words to this young pastor to do. Second Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Catch in this one verse, these two verses, the four generations of disciples of Jesus that are mentioned. Paul, Timothy, the faithful men whom Timothy will teach, and those that the faithful men will teach. Four generations of believers in two verses. The gospel, friends, is a precious investment in the life of another. It is the good news that Jesus died for sinners and that he was raised again from the dead, and that when we believe this gospel and receive Christ in faith, this is good news that saves us. But it's not a gift for the keeping, Christian. It's a gift for the giving. 
In fact, it's a gift that we can come to know that one has received precisely because of that person's joy in giving it to others. You can know if someone has really tasted the benefits of the gospel, received new life in Christ, if they love sharing that gospel with others. If they see it not as a gift to hold on to, but one to give and to give freely. It is a gospel that makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul tells Timothy in 3.15, and the gospel that will do the same in others. Friend, hear me this morning. Let me be clear about this wonderful message of the gospel. Let me give you this gift this morning if you'll receive it. The gospel is this, that there is a holy God in heaven who lives and resides and by his own nature is perfectly just. There is no act of injustice, no act of evil, great or small, that escapes his vision and against which he will not execute perfect justice. The bad news is all of us are sinners. All of us have rebelled against that holy, perfect God, and all of us are deserving of his perfect justice. Scripture tells us that the wages of our sin against God, what we earn for our sin, is death. But the free gift of God in contradiction to what we earn for our death, the free gift of God is life, eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This has been God's plan of redemption from the moment of our first parents' sin, Adam and Eve, to cause his son to come into the world, Jesus, God in the flesh, living among us, a life without sin, a life that not a one of us ever lived, that he would die on the cross in our place as a substitute for our sin. Because the wages of sin is death, and that death must be paid. But in Christ, that death is paid on our behalf. And Jesus, being the sinless Son of God, receiving our punishment, Uh, in our place on the cross, pays for sins. And he is buried and raised from the dead on the third day, raised in victory to demonstrate that sin and death cannot hold him. That, That the sins that he died to pay for are not strong enough to keep him dead. And so now in, in his resurrection, he calls all who will, who will come to him in repentance of sin and trust in him to come to him that he might save them that he might give you new life, that he might make you right in right standing and have good and renewed fellowship with God who created you to know, love, and worship him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for sinners so that those who trust him might be made whole, made new, be healed in him. We've all heard the sales pitch, especially as Christmas is approaching, to give the gift that keeps on giving. Right? That, in, that in mind this week, I looked for some lists of just such things. And do you know what I found? Gifts that keep on giving? Mostly gift cards, personal skincare products, and bread machines. <laughs> they're not all junk, but they're all stuff that eventually runs out, goes bad, or breaks down. There is, to be sure, only one gift that never fails to be 100% effective when it is gladly received 100% of the time, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. Not everyone will receive it. But friend, it costs nothing but your time and your care for others to give. The power of the gospel will never run out. It will never lose its efficacy. It will never come up short. It will never disappoint. So Christian, because it is a generational gift, give it freely. Give it often. Be a precocious, generous, glad gospel giver. Confidence in Christ enables suffering for Christ. The gospel, Timothy, is a generational gift. You received it. Give it freely. Among his last words, Paul reminds Timothy that faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. 
As a son in the faith, Paul sought to set a consistent example of faithfulness to Timothy. He reminds Timothy of this early on in the letter, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And to be sure, this was Paul's pattern also among the Corinthians, among the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, all churches to which we have letters from Paul to, to give them an example worthy of imitating. Paul recounts this for the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4.16 and 11.1, in Ephesians 5.1, in Philippians 3.17, in 1 Thessalonians 1.6 and 2.14, in <coughs> excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 3.7 and 3.9, Paul in all of those places saying, I set you a pattern of Christ-likeness to follow. If you want to know what a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus looks like, look at my life, says Paul. It's helpful to have examples like this to follow. To have pictures of faithfulness, pictures of steadfastness, of endurance in Christ. But let's assume we don't have a living example in front of us. What does faithfulness look like? What is this life that Paul is calling Timothy to live and to model? What does it look like? Well, Paul gives Timothy three analogies, three illustrations from the world. He says in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, says to Timothy, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in, civ- in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So, what does faithfulness look like? Faithfulness looks like a soldier. It looks steadfastly, who looks steadfastly to Christ the Lord, staying focused on the task at hand, not being distracted from the mission. Faithfulness looks like a trained athlete who guards his life, his conduct, and his competition so that he might compete and win legitimately. Faithfulness looks like a farmer who tills the soil, sows the seed, waters patiently, and harvests on the appropriate day. So Paul puts it into plain language for Timothy in chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. He says, faithfulness looks like this, fleeing youthful passions, pursue righteousness, pursue faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversy, something that uh, characterized the false teachers in Timothy's day. You know that these breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So faithfulness to the mission of Christ matters. It matters enough for Paul to emphasize it in this final letter to Timothy. But again, why? Why, Paul, spend so much time talking about faithfulness, steadfastness? Well, faithfulness to Christ matters because in Timothy's day and in Timothy's city in Ephesus, there were many who had become faithless, falling away from Christ and taking many with them. Read a description of these in chapter 3, 1 to 7. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. 
For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Faithfulness matters because it distinguishes true disciples of Jesus from false disciples, godly leaders from abusive ones. In the same way that godliness is of value in every way, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 4 verse 8, and godliness is required of every church leader, so also faithfulness, steadfastness, perseverance in Christ is a parallel imperative for this young Timothy. And not just for him, but for everyone who would look to him as an example of Christ-likeness. Faithfulness, my friends, will outlast fame. Faithfulness will bear lasting fruit. Faithfulness will accomplish great things in time if we pursue it. Christ is our ultimate example in this. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. He is faithfulness and steadfastness personified. Faithfulness to Christ matters. It's important in ministry and in life Because faithfulness says something about the transforming and the transcendent power of Jesus to make us what he desires us to be. It shows something of who we have made the Lord of our lives, Christ or self. Faithfulness to Jesus shows where our uh, our faithfulness over time shows where our allegiances are to Jesus or to to others. The Lord of Lords or the allure of public accolades. Faithfulness to Jesus may not buy you much in this life, friend. In fact, it'll probably buy you very little. But we've already seen the Lord himself rewards faithfulness with a crown of righteousness to all who faithfully have awaited his appearing with godly character, with labor in the gospel, with love for others. Timothy's up against a hard road to hoe in Ephesus. He must be faithful. Faithfulness matters. Finally, among Paul's words of encouragement, his last words of encouragement to Timothy, he gives him this in saying that God's word will will do his work. God's word will do his work. Creativity is good. God has made us creative beings. Creativity is good when it comes to the arts, when it comes to technological innovations. Creativity is good when it comes to craftsmen's trades. Creativity is not so good, friends, when it comes to gospel teaching. And yet the human fascination with novelty and newness and originality and doing things, not doing things the way they've always been done or doing things the way they've never been done before, these can be especially dangerous when it comes to the gospel. Knowing this, Paul exhorts, he charges Timothy not to try to improve upon, not to try to innovate or get creative with God's word, but let God's word do his work. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 to chapter 4, verse 2, he says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. God's word will do God's work, Timothy. After all, it's his word. He breathed it out, guiding human authors by the Holy Spirit to write it. And his word is profitable. His word is beneficial. It's advantageous. It's to the benefit 
of all men and women of God to do what God desires and requires of us. So, Timothy, preach the word. Open it up. And with faithful, patient teaching, watch the word work, Timothy. The task of simply preaching the same library of scriptures, these 66 books we call the Bible, two testaments, old and new, written over the course of about 1,500 years by 40-plus human authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, preaching this same library of scriptures over and again confounds the pursuit of novelty in our sinful human nature. We always want something new. We always want something fresh. We always want the latest, the greatest, the newest, the next. We want more, we want better, we want new, we want fresh, different experiences and products that make us feel like we're making some sort of progress in life. Boredom with the scriptures is at best a mark of immaturity in the believer, and at worst a sign that one is not really a believer at all. Now this is not a doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture, this encouragement to preach the word and keep preaching it. It's not an encouragement to be a boring preacher. (laughs) But if we are bored with Scripture, we, we may not be very mature in the faith that we say that we have, or we may not understand the Scriptures that we're reading because we're not really believers anyway. The churchgoer whose response to faithful gospel preaching of the Word is, what else you got, Pastor? Give me something that will actually work. We get it already. Jesus saves sinners. How many more times are you going to keep saying that? Give us something new. That person communicates a lot about what they think works. And they'll eventually give their ear to hearing what they want to hear. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, Paul says, A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That warning, dear church, is evergreen. It is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. There are innumerable tactics, programs, topics, and pragmatistic expression that will take you everywhere but to Jesus and to Christian maturity. But Timothy and we must not be tempted to think that he can ever outgrow, that we can ever outgrow the Scriptures. The Word of God will do God's work. Trust it. Know it. Proclaim it. Live it. Then lather, rinse, and repeat for every subsequent generation until Christ returns. We will never exhaust the manifold, myriad wisdom of God's Word in our lifetime or our children's or our grandchildren's lifetime. And we'll never exhaust its relevance and its applicability to our lives when we teach it faithfully. When we follow it truly God's Word will do His work. He has promised it. So let's open His Word and let Him work on us. The great reformer, Martin Luther, seemed somewhat surprised about 500 years ago, not too many years after the Reformation had begun, when some of his Roman Catholic opponents gave the insulting title of Lutheran to those who were won over uh, by the Word of God under Luther's teaching. And to that charge, to that insult of being called a Lutheran because you're Learning from Martin Luther, Martin Luther uh, equipped, he said, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people called the children of Christ by my evil name? I simply taught, 
preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing, Luther said. The word did everything. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable, beneficial, advantageous for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So, preach the word, Timothy. Know the word, Christian. Be in the word. Teach the word, believer. The word of God is uniquely sufficient. It is on its own enough to do the work of God in the people of God. And Paul is so certain of the power of the word to do all that God intends through it when it is faithfully and gently and patiently taught that with his last words to Timothy, he says, preach this word. Give it to the saints till it comes flowing out of their heads. Preach it until it's all they want to hear. Teach it so they can't get enough of the gospel that it declares. This is your task, my son. This is our task. This is the task of the church. Preach the word. It works. Friend, what did you come to church to hear today? If you're a member of this church, I hope by now, what you're going to get from me Or from any man that stands in this pulpit, so long as I have any influence over it, by God's grace and with His help, you will get His Word, the Gospel, week by week, month by month, year by year, till Christ comes again. Why? Because it works. Because it works. You're going to get His Word clearly explained, faithfully applied, lovingly taught, because it's how God works in His people. Listen, 1 Timothy 3, 16 through chapter 4, verse 2 is, is not just foundational in Timothy's life and ministry. Friends, it's become foundational in mine. I've shared this with you before. My philosophy in ministry can be summed up in three phrases. In one sentence and three phrases. The Word of God does the work of God in the people of God. The Word of God does the work of God in the people of God. So if we want God's people to be what he wants them to be, what shall we give them? His word. Over and over and over again. Clearly explained, gently, patiently taught, faithfully applied, so that he can do what he wants to do in us for his glory and for our good and for the spread of the kingdom. Preach the word, Timothy. I have a little bit of time, so I'm going to add a fifth point. It's one, I, it's one I left out, but um, I don't know if it's a point so much as an observation. But here we have Paul in this, probably the last letter of his life, knowing he's about to die. In earlier parts of the letter, talking about all the people who abandoned him, who left him. And one faithful man, Onesiphorus, who, who looked all throughout Rome to find him until he found Paul so he could minister to him. And Paul's so grateful for him. But there's this kind of tone through a lot of Second Timothy that Paul feels incredibly alone and abandoned and by himself at this point in his life. And you kind of get it. I'm sympathetic to it. And Paul is, is fully expecting to lose his head for the gospel. But at the end of Second Timothy... He points out and demonstrates that, demonstrates that as, as lonely as he feels, he's really not all that alone. 
Look at 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 9. These are Paul's personal instructions, personal greetings. We often pass over these things relatively quickly because there's not a lot of maybe theological substance there, but these are words that even these words have been breathed out by the Holy Spirit through Paul. So let's look at them. Paul says to Timothy in uh, chapter 4, verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia to do ministry. It's not a bad leaving, it's a good leaving. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. This is John Mark, the one uh, who Paul said he wanted nothing to do with on the mission field in like Acts chapter 9 or 10, I believe. Now Mark is useful to Paul and they have uh, reconciled and restored their relationship. Get Mark, bring him with you for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left at Carpus, with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. He wants his copies of the scriptures. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. He strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila, probably Priscilla and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. But do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends his greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Paul, at the end of his life, writing these last words to Timothy, in many number of places, speaks about how lonely he is, knowing he's probably going to die soon. But even in all of his loneliness, Paul is not alone. The Lord is with him. Yes, of course, the Lord stood by me, strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. The Lord is with me. I'm not scared, Timothy. But you see, notice all the other people that have been with Paul too? Crescens, Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Prisca and Aquila, Onesiphorus, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. Here's an encouragement for you, Christian. When you know someone who's suffering for the gospel, someone enduring hardship, maybe not even for the gospel, but just in life, be a dear friend in Christ to those who are struggling. Be the person who's present in moments when people feel most alone because the Lord will use your ministry to them as his ministry to them also. Make heroes in your own life of these people about which we know virtually nothing. Pudens, Linus, Claudia, the unnamed brothers, Eubulus, Trophimus, Onesiphorus, Erastus, Mark, Luke. Make heroes of these. Little known and little cared about outside of their their mention uh, here just in Scripture. But make heroes of these who come alongside servants of the gospel to pray for those who are suffering, to minister to those who are hurting. Be a good friend in Christ. These are good last words. Last words teach us a lot about the priorities and the personality of those who speak them. For Paul, the themes of his life that made their way into his final wisdom for Timothy are all about Christ. His last words are all about salvation through Jesus. His last words are all about encouragement for faithfulness to Christ's word and to his church, even and especially when the world and others may turn on Timothy for it. 
Last words have a way of sticking with us. They have a way of clarifying our memory of the ones who say them. Paul's last words ensure that Timothy's and our memory of Paul would not fixate on the apostle, but on Christ. Let us, dear friends, live with such confidence in Christ, with such generational gospel proclamation, with such faithfulness to Jesus and trust in his word in such a way that we too, even in our death, become living signposts to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to Jesus, the friend of sinners and Savior to all who have trusted him and patiently waited his appearing. These are faithful last words from the apostle written by his hand, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are words that are profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that we may be competent and equipped for every good work. So friend, let us heed these last words. Let us live them out with faithfulness to Jesus, knowing that he sees and judges and saves everyone who looks to him with confidence. Let's pray together.